Well, good morning, everybody. Y'all ready for church? Let's go. Come on. Good morning online. Let's go. You ready for church? Come on. We are finishing up this series called Devoted. I'm a little disappointed, a little sad. It's been awesome. We've just heard so much good things. You know, there was a story that came out earlier today about a man in his 50s, felt like he was back in high school when he first gave his life to Christ. God just breathed some life into him. And, and I pray with people who've just kind of broken through some addictions, some sinful patterns. We've seen some marriages come back together. It's just been really good. And, and as we look at this idea of being devoted, we just took this snapshot at the early church and to look at some things they were devoted to. And uh, man, I hope that it's challenged you. Maybe you've learned a little bit more about Jesus, maybe more about your calling, a little firmer about what your purpose is. And uh, the way that we've gotten into it was reading through this, this part of the story of the early church where it says they were devoted to some things and they saw some, some supernatural things happen. And you know, what, what, what can tend to happen in churches is that we can dabble in things we should be devoted to. And what they, what the early church experienced regularly, we'll, we, want, we won't experience at all. And so we want to just kind of reorient and reset our attention and our focus on the things that the early church did. And so we're going to read this passage one more time out of Acts chapter 2. And because it's our last time to read it together for this particular series, um, I, let's, let's all stand together and read it together. It'll be on your screen. Let's just read and stand in honor of God's word. But Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yes, sir. Let's pray together. God, yeah, we can clap right there. Let's go. God, we want to be a church where we just see, see people come to know you, that their lives are changed, their hearts are transformed, that the old is gone, the new has come, God, that we'd never lose sight of the reason why you came and the power, the power of the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. So you guys can grab a seat. Uh, you know, as we think about this, this idea of being devoted, we looked at a lot of different areas where they were devoted. They were devoted to worship. They were devoted to fellowship, kind of getting together. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to God's word. They were devoted um, to sharing the story, to living on mission. They, they were devoted. But, but what is it that drove this devotion is what I want to talk about today. Like, like what was the driving force, the foundation of this devotion, especially to see the early church grow and explode? As it said, the Lord added their number day by day. I mean, did they just have good strategy? Is that what it was? Like they got in a room together and they just planned these awesome services. And it says, if we get a great parking lot team, people will come to know Jesus. You know, if we organize our lobby, man, if we just teach on the right things, if we just, if we do a sermon series on sex, everybody will show up, right? I mean, is that how they did it? No, man, there was something more than that. Man, there was something internal. There was this driving force that happened in the early church because the reality is when things get tough strategy strategy stops and devotion is what continues and here's the thing about churches 
Devoted churches grow and distracted churches die. Devoted churches grow and distracted churches die. And the same is true for people. Man, devoted people grow and distracted people die. And what was the early church devoted to that was so life-changing, that was so transforming? What was the early church devoted to that what was started then continues today and can never be stopped? The early church has this devotion to the gospel, this devotion to the gospel. And today what I want to talk about is just this fuel of the gospel and how the gospel never stops. It doesn't stop in our lives and it doesn't stop in the world. It doesn't stop with us. It goes through us. And then we're going to kind of end up talking about the finish line of the gospel. Like, like what is that? And in between, I want to talk about some areas that people and churches and denominations get distracted and maybe even some things that we believe will bring life, kind of like a false gospel so that we can unpack that. So grab your Bibles. We're still going to be in Acts chapter two. I want us to start by looking at kind of the prequel to the devoted passage we just read. You, you remember what a prequel is, right? You remember watching the Star Wars and then all of a sudden they, just, they came out with the prequel that happened and they did it for dollars. We did it by design. See, there's a prequel that happened to this passage and, and it's in Peter's preaching in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. If you'll look with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, watch this. Peter's preaching and he says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Like that doesn't feel very seeker sensitive, does it? Like, hey, I'll get a lot of people together, hey, you killed Jesus. Like that doesn't necessarily feel like it's gonna work. But he keeps on preaching. Killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then, and then jump over to verse 38 and 39. It says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, so we see this, this fuel for the mission that it wasn't just it wasn't just geographical, it was also generational because it was also for their children. Now, now just kind of in a simplified kind of, uh, what, kind of simplified bullet point form, the gospel goes like this, man, there is a God and he is good. Somebody say amen right there, right? Like there is a God who created the heavens and the earth and he's good. And, and every, every day when we wake up and we see a sunset or we go to bed and we see a sunrise, that's proof that God is good. There, every day when we see rain come and, you know, water our grass so that it grows, it's just it's just proof that God is good. Every blessing we receive, it's just proof that God is good. Man, there is a God and he is good. But we do know there's some things in the world that aren't good. And if there's a problem, that problem is the fact that there's sin in the world. That, that there's some things that you and I have done that every person in humanity outside of Jesus has done. Where we have straight away, we've broken God's heart because we broke his laws. And so God gives us a solution. And this solution is in the name of Jesus. And that when we commit to follow him, because he died for our sins, because he rose again, because he suffered like we did instead of us suffering, he suffered. And the response is our life. Like this is the gospel. 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the fuel for the movement. And I could walk through the pages of the book of Acts. It's got 28 different chapters. And I could, t- I could in 28 different times, you could see how they preached the gospel. You see it here in chapter 2. In verse, in, in chapter three, we see that Peter's preaching and he says he, he wants that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And then over in Acts chapter four, it says that it says that they called and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus, but they couldn't stop. And he said, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. In chapter 5, we see them preach the gospel. And it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And then you see over in Acts chapter 7, a guy named Stephen is stoned, no relation. But Stephen's, the whole chapter is him giving the outline of Jesus from the beginning of time all the way until he ascended into heaven. And and then in chapter eight, we see that Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And uh, we also see in chapter eight that Philip preached. It says they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And they were baptized, both men and women. And then you see Paul preaching Jesus in chapter nine. And then in chapter 10, you have Peter that says, as for this word, Peter preached the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And the story just goes on and on and on and on. They were just overwhelmed. And then even as we get to the end, I just got to read this and I wasn't planning on it. But the very last verse in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, it says this. It says that Paul was in prison. And it says he welcomed all who came proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. Like this is overwhelming in the early church. Like no matter what they faced, this was the fuel for their devotion. They exported it everywhere, and we can never get away from it. Listen, we can never get away from it. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul is writing, and he, he gives us an overview of the gospel, and we see the focus of the gospel. And in chapter 15, in verse 3, it says, I delivered to you as of first importance, like first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Like this was the, this was the only message that Paul had. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 earlier, it says, I, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in this, we just see the focus of the gospel. Now, now when Paul says that I delivered to you what was of first importance, what Paul is saying is it, it's first as in it goes first, but it's also best. It's also preeminent. You see, the gospel is the, it's the foundation that we stand on. It's the walls that support us. It's the doorway to life. It's the roof that shelters us. This is the power of the gospel. It is the best. Like It is the main entree at the restaurant. It is filet mignon cooked medium rare at the restaurant. It is the core business unit. It is the Alabama of college football. Nobody. It's the best. It is first. It is best. Man, it never stops. It never gets tired. It never grows old. And it leaves a wake of life in its path. Like this is the gospel. Now, now the reason why I think Paul says it's first and the reason why we have to kind of double down on it is we lose it by losing focus and getting distracted. You ever been distracted doing anything? 
You ever get distracted? Maybe, have you ever been distracted just reading a book? You're reading a book and all of a sudden you realize, I, I forgot what I was reading. I need to go read that again. That happens to me all the time when I'm reading John Piper. Some of you Piper fans will know why, right? Like, have you ever been distra- distracted? Any, any, any uh, folks that are married, you got distracted maybe when, you're, maybe when your spouse was talking to you, you, not me? You ever been distracted when you were driving? Like, like we know the dangers of getting distracted. This happens. This happens. Have you ever been distracted? Maybe you went to buy a car and you got distracted for a minute. Think about, think about it. Has this ever happened to anybody? So you go in, you have a price point that you're going to buy a car. I don't know, whatever you want it to be. Call it 30 grand. I don't know. And so you go in and that's your price point. That's your limit. That's all you're going to pay. But, but then they, there's this leather option for just a few dollars more per month, right? Now, Dave Ramsey would not approve, but it, it can happen. And then heated seats. And then, and then, you know, everybody has got XM radio. Like, if you don't have it, then you're, then you're nobody. you got to get XM radio. And the next thing you know, you have doubled the purchase price of your vehicle. Now, if you would have known that's what you were going to spend in the first place, you would have stepped back and says, I'll just get like a Porsche Cayenne or something, right? I mean, I'll get something different than this Honda Civic that's tricked out. But we get distracted. And listen, this happens. This happens with the gospel, man. We, we get distracted. We get off base. And the greatest threat, the greatest threat to, to church, the greatest threat to Christianity is not, it's not from the outside. You know, a lot of times we think the greatest threat to Christianity could be persecution. But what we've, what we've seen history tell us and, and historians study is that the more the church is persecuted, actually the more it flourishes. You know, the early church, when Nero was reigning in Rome, he lined the streets of Rome with burning bodies on crosses of Christians, yet it just continued to explode. In China, when they outlawed Christianity and threw Christians in prison, what happened? The church exploded. There's a saying that says this, is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That somehow this devotion just gets stronger and rebels against anyone who would try to hold it back and persecute it. Man, it's not persecution. It's not what's going to hold the church back. You know, it's not, it's not uh, censorship, not a pandemic. You know, the early church faced the pandemic bubonic plague, and they faced some other pan- pandemic swine flu that killed way more people than our current pandemic, which is terrible. One is too many. And it was said of some pastors then, some leaders of the early church, it says they almost seemed to enjoy the pandemic because they saw God do some amazing, miraculous works. You see, the, the greatest threat from Christianity is not outside. The greatest threat to the church is from the inside, that we'd get distracted from the gospel. Like the greatest, the greatest threat is not censorship, but complacency. And this is why Paul says it's of first importance. And you, you never outgrow the gospel. You never get too sophisticated for the gospel. You know, there are times when churches, in, in, in trying to, you know, appeal to the masses, what they've done is they've, they've watered it down or removed the gospel. And what happens? Those churches die. Denominations are dying today because they've strayed away from this fundamental principle. And the churches that actually are reaching people and see lives change are the churches and the people who are devoted to the message. 
You know, you know, one of the things about what Paul says when he says it's first, he says it's also ongoing. Like, like the gospel's not just for that first time you begin to follow Jesus. Sometimes those of us who follow Jesus, we think that. Like, okay, the gospel is you can go to heaven when you die. It's kind of, it's kind of there. And that's pretty good news, if I'm being honest, right? Who doesn't want to go to heaven when they die? Um, but there's more to it than that. There's this phrase that says you have to preach the gospel to your situation. You have to preach the gospel to yourself. Anybody ever heard this phrase? Nobody. You should write that down, right? Preach the gospel to yourself. Here's what this means. Like we need to preach the gospel to our bank account. Man, my bank account doesn't define me. The amount of money or lack thereof that's in my bank account doesn't define me. That God has given me some things and God wants me to manage them for his, for his glory. Man, we need to preach the gospel to our, to our loneliness. When we feel lonely, the gospel says that God is enough. We need, we need to preach the gospel to our depression and anxiety and fear because it says perfect love casts out fear. We need to preach the gospel into our, into our suffering because we know that Jesus is with us through our suffering and all suffering will be redeemed. We need to preach the gospel to our sin that Jesus doesn't want to just forgive us of our sin, but he wants to set us free from our sin. Like we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, Paul said it this way in Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but because it is the power of God unto salvation. Say amen right there. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's the beginning and the end. It is everything is captured in this message of the gospel and it transforms our hearts. Now, now what we're going to see and what I want to jump, I'm going to jump to a sermon that Paul preached that makes it really, really practical, right? It takes, it takes the gospel and he connects it to someone's life situation because sometimes that feels hard. Like you may know the gospel, be like, how do I connect it to somebody that needs to hear it, that needs to understand it? And so I'm going to do that by turning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Now, now Paul is in uh, the city called Athens. You've probably heard of that. Paul is in Athens. And Paul's, his normal routine was he would, Paul was a great missionary. He would go into a city and because he was a trained Pharisee, a trained religious leader, he would go to the synagogue and he would begin to tell them, hey, that the Messiah you've been waiting for, he showed up. And he began to tell them about Jesus. So Paul has gone to Athens. He's waiting for some friends to show up so they can continue on this missionary journey and watch what happens. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, Why does this what, does this, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now notice it said that he reasoned with them. Now, now just get the image here. Let, let's say um, you could be down at, the, at Avalon or at Halcyon and you just began to talk to people, right? He, he's reasoning with them. Most, most times when we think of these environments, we think of that street corner preacher who feels a little bit angry and is loud and yells. Have you noticed this? And he's not really reasoning. He's just yelling at people. That's kind of what we get. But Paul was reasoning with them. He was appealing to their intellect, to their mind, to their experience. He wasn't asking them to just follow something that they didn't understand or didn't have a chance to, to ask questions about. Then it goes on in verse 21. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, this men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, these idols, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So, so Paul just takes where they are, their situation, and he connects it to the gospel. Now, the first thing Paul talks about and notices is these idols that they've built. Now, in the city of Athens, it said that there are more gods than people because they had these little statues everywhere that were these different kind of idols, these different gods. Now, now I, I, we don't really talk about idols a lot, and I think we have trouble understanding kind of what our idols are now because I have a feeling that for most people, I may not go to your house and you've got this room set aside where you've got your little statues that you're worshiping. Maybe, but, but in general, that, that's not the case. That's not the idols that we have. But there are things in our life that we feed. There's things that are in our life that we give our attention and our affection that, that could be idols. And there, and there are people that you know that have idols. When I was in Indonesia a couple of years ago, uh, you would walk down the street and houses on either side and they had these little... Uh, altars out by the road kind of like our mailboxes are you know in the old houses when they have mailboxes in front of the house you know that now they don't have that anymore um and every day when you all buy they would have put rice and plantains or some kind of food on the altar for their god whatever that god may be now now I, what were they thinking in the morning when they came out and that food was still there like, like what what did they think oh i guess wasn't hungry tonight or what is it? Why were they feeding these idols? But you have to ask yourself, like, what idol are you feeding in your own life? You know, what, what, what are you worshiping? What are you giving your attention and your affection? Now, in our culture, let me just kind of draw some, let me draw some parallels. As Paul talked about an unknown God, let me talk about the God that we tend to worship, me, you, and especially in our context. Number one is comfort. Somebody say amen right there. Like we worship comfort. Have you noticed all of the tools for comfort that we have? Have you noticed this? Can you say microwave? Can you say Amazon? How many people are feeding Amazon today? Like we can get whatever we want whenever we want it. Just in your mind, go through your house. Like you have a room for your cars in your house. An automatic door that opens. You go into your kitchen, you have a microwave, you got a double dutch oven that you rarely use one of them, but you got two, right? And then you go to your bathroom, like how many nozzles do we need in the shower, by the way? And we just have so much comfort that we, we get distracted by and we forget, we begin to live for that. We begin to feed that idol of comfort. And it's all about the, new, the next upgrade and the bigger TV and the, and, and the next vacation. Now, it's not that any of those things are inherently bad, but what happens is they begin to own us. Have you ever noticed that when you, the more you own, when something breaks, it takes more time, it takes more money, it takes more devotion? So we have comfort. Hey, the second one that we tend to worship is our appearance. Appearance. We spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of money. We spend a lot of effort being concerned by what other people think of us, not just physically, but, but in, in, the larger uh, uh, in the larger scheme of just our image. And we want people to like us. We want people to think we're important. We want people to think that we're valuable. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Of course, everyone wants to think that you fit in. But we began to feed that. And we, it's like the old saying goes, you wouldn't worry about what people thought of you if you, if you knew how little they did. Get that? 
And so we feed these idols. And listen, people you know, these are the idols they're feeding. And for some reason, they think it's going to bring them life. It's going to bring them hope. And it's going to bring them satisfaction. Have you noticed how it never happens? There's always a little bit more. There's always one more thing. There's always a next degree. There's always the next toy. There's always something next. Now, what Paul, it says of him in verse 16, it says that he was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And that word just means that he was incited to action. That he looked around and he wasn't incited to action because he was angry at them, but he was angry for them. He knew that there was more to life. He'd experienced the more that came with following Jesus. So as he looked at them and he realized and he knew they were chasing after idols, they were chasing after things that could never actually deliver on their promises. And so he was provoked. He was incited to action. People, you know, knowing that they were running down a a road that was going to bankrupt them. And listen, as long as culture is our norm and not the gospel, we'll never be provoked for people. And we'll never be provoked in love. We'll never be able to see how their life is not living up to the measure that they have for it. It says Paul was provoked. And then Paul goes on and starts preaching some more in um, verse 23. Paul says this. He says, for as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Then in 24, it says, the God who made the heaven and earth... Remember, the gospel starts with God. Heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So what Paul is saying is that unknown God, that, that's stirring in you simply because God has put in you a desire to find him. And that's the same for us. And the Bible says God's put eternity in our hearts. And so what that means is we begin to try to pursue other things instead of God. And we make good things into God things. And, and what ends up happening is we get distracted. And we get distracted by some good things that happen. And, and, and I want to talk about this when, as it comes to, you know, we may not have an idol in our home, but let me just point out some gospels that will lead you down the wrong path. See, what can happen is we exchange the power of the gospel for the product of the gospel. So if the gospel produces something, what happens is we begin to run after what it's producing. So let me give you an example. Have you ever heard of the prosperity gospel? Anybody? Four of us. That's awesome. Y'all do not watch television. Um, No, that's awesome. Um, prosperity gospel goes like this. God wants you to be healthy and God wants you to be rich. Okay. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be rich. If you're, if you're good with God, your, your bank account's going to be full. If you're good with God, you're going to avoid the doctor. You won't go to the hospital. You're not going to have your shoulders, not going to hurt. Your knees, not going to hurt. Like you are going to be good. Like everything's going to go well in your life, health and wealth. Now here's the problem with this. The problem with the prosperity gospel is the Bible. That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. Like, like, think about this. Jesus, do you know what he owned when he was on earth? Nothing. He even told some of his followers, I have nowhere to lay my head. Like, he didn't come and build a mansion. He didn't build a throne. He had nothing. And listen, when, if, you, if you begin to think this way, that, that life is supposed to go good, 
you're going to have, we're going to have problems when it comes to suffering. Because you know what you and I have in common? I don't care who you are, where you're from, what, what your background is, what nationality, it doesn't matter. The one thing all humans have in common is suffering. Amen, somebody? Like we, we, we're going to face suffering. And it doesn't mean that God's not good. It means that there's a problem and it's sin. But we're going to face suffering. We're going to face suffering. Hey, the disciples, those who were the closest to Jesus, all died bad. Like, like bad, like hung upside down on a cross, stoned, thrown off the top of the temple, boiled in oil, like they died bad, they suffered. And listen, if we believe that, that God only is a magic genie that wants to make me healthy and wealthy, we're going to miss out on the power of the transformation of the gospel, right? That's, we can't believe that that's what's going to happen. Does God want you to be healthy? Yeah, he does. Now, it may not happen until you get to eternity. And some of you are watching online from a hospital room, and I can't imagine the pain and the struggle because I know some of you and I know your story and you've been there a long time. God has not forgotten you. That's the gospel. So listen, we can't, we can't think that just because we're having some suffering, God's not involved. That's not the gospel. We will be transformed when we see him. We will see him as he is. Prosperity gospel is not the gospel. Hey, activism sometimes as good as it is, activism is not the gospel. So, so here's how this looks. Like, man, the one thing that Jesus, one thing that Jesus did is he elevated the value of people more than anybody in history. You know this, right? Like the early church, when it's first getting formed in the Roman world, women were property and children were treated as animals. And what the gospel did was it elevated everybody to the same level. Listen, no matter your age, no matter your race, no matter your social status, no matter your political status, where you were, like it elevated and, and equalized everybody. Nobody has done more for human rights than Jesus and the early church. Amen? Like, like this is truth. If you, if you go into certain places around the world where they have sex trafficking, so one of our partners, she is safe, they'll, they'll go to some remote villages and you will not find a female over the age of 12. Why? Her dad has sold her into sexual slavery, right? Makes doing your homework not sound so bad, doesn't it? Like, it is terrible. So what happens? In those communities, there's no church. So they move in, they begin to preach the gospel. They gather some believers. They start a church. And in those communities, when they go back, they start seeing girls in their teens again. They start seeing young women again. Like this is the power of the gospel. But when we make that, when we make that the end, listen, I'm all for digging wells in Africa. We should do that. Man, we should feed poor people. You know what? You can buy some Tom's shoes. It doesn't matter. But I'm, I'm not as worried about Tom's shoes as I am Tom's soul. And so we, we, can, we need to know. But that's just an outpouring of the gospel. Because what happens if we go there without the gospel? Eventually, our fuel runs out. Eventually, we can't do it anymore. We have no power. And that's another one. Activism, as good as it is, it's not the gospel. Hey, morality, morality is another one. Like, have you ever heard this? Man, maybe uh, I've, I've heard parents say, I just want my kids to grow up in church. Like, I think that's good, especially this church because we're pretty awesome around here. But they, what they really want is morals, good behavior. Now, 
There is nothing that drives morality more than the gospel. Because we want to please God, don't we? And we live in our life for God. But when we, just, uh, when we, when we reduce it to just some do's and don'ts in the Ten Commandments, we, we've, missed, we've missed the gospel. We've missed the power of the gospel. Uh, another one, the political gospel, hello. <laughs> just get our, our candidate in office. Just get our policies enacted. Just, just, man, let's just get our guys in there and then everything will be good. No, it won't. Why? You can't legislate anything, can you? And, and I'm all for, man, I think there should be Christians in every sphere of life. Man, should run for office, should be CEOs of companies, should be principals, should be teachers. And we should be involved and engaged in every area of life. But, but let's don't mistake the product for the power of the gospel. You know, there's another one called kind of this therapeutic gospel. We just kind of want to be at peace. I just want inner peace. Can I just have some inner peace? Can I just not have all this noise in my life? And so we'll kind of take Jesus and we'll adopt him. We'll, we'll do everything we can to get peace. You know, we'll only shop at Whole Foods to get all the healthy food. We'll only, you know, we'll watch what we're, we'll go to the gym and exercise. And, you know, we're going to read the right books. We're not going to watch Netflix. And we're going to add a little Jesus in there. And we think that's going to work. And what we're looking for is a cross between Dr. Phil and Santa Claus to kind of give us a happy meal so everything will be good. And, and, we, and we'll buy self-help books and we'll, we'll try to counsel away our problems or we'll try to meditate them away or medicate them away, whichever one works. And it, and it misses the big problem, which is not inner peace, but peace with God. And the gospel promises peace with God. And if you're looking for inner peace, I have some bad news for you. you you're probably not going to find it in this life. There's always going to be ups and downs. Your team is always going to lose. You know, your bank account is never going to have enough. Traffic is always going to be bad. Like, you're never going to find it. But, man, when you have peace that Jesus says he is our peace, then you've got peace, That this therapeutic gospel. Now, the problem with all of those is the finish line. They're looking at the wrong finish line. They pretend the finish line is here. Watch what Paul says in verse 30 about the finish line. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him, believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So, so Paul points to the finish line. He points to eternity. It's not a bigger house. It's not, it's not, it's not leaving your legacy. Like, like the finish line is eternity and we have to have eyes for eternity. Now, Paul in, in verse 31, he says this, a day on which he will judge the world. Now, this is not something that gets talked about a lot, is it? Judgment. You, you know, what we know of, the, of eternity at the end of time is that we're, we're going to stand before God and it will be a trembling experience. <laughs> a, 
and we'll all be judged. Christians will be judged differently than those who don't follow Jesus. People who follow Jesus will be judged differently. People who follow Jesus, there will be a judgment. There will be an evaluation. There will be an opportunity for us where God will evaluate our works and will judge them. But, but it's not gonna affect our eternity as far as going to heaven. Now, for those who don't know Jesus, here's the thing. There's a judgment that happens. There's judgment that happens and we don't like to talk about it. And we don't like to talk about it because maybe we don't understand it. Uh, maybe it doesn't feel like it should be real. And so we just kind of dismiss it. But there's a, there's a judgment now. And what, what the Bible teaches us is that people who were judged without Christ, they find themselves eternally separated from him. A place called hell, Hades, Sheol. It's called some different things in the Bible, but it's this eternal separation from God. And when we lose this in the gospel, and we lose the urgency that God wants us to live with. Now, now one reason we don't like to talk about judgment is because we've heard messages of judgment before from people and it felt like they were glad to tell us that we were gonna be judged, right? It felt like they were happy. Paul is heartbroken. He wants this not to happen and he wants to be able to step them to step into eternal life because that's the finish line. And the finish line is not here, finish line is there. Now inside deeply we know this. There's something that echoes in your heart, it stirs in your soul, that you know you were made for more. And as C.S. Lewis would say, hey, hey, the fact that nothing satisfies you meant that, means that you were made for another world. And this is the gospel, that God loves you deeply and he's created a way for our sins to be forgiven. Now there's three responses in this particular passage to the gospel. One, people just kind of walked away. They're like, ah, we'll hear you again about this. And that's some of you, you're, you're, you'll hear and you're like, ah, we'll think about it. We'll walk away. I'll wait till next time. Maybe he'll tell, tell a more emotional story and I'll be engaged. Now for some people, it says they, they mocked him and, and they, they mocked him about the resurrection of the dead. And some of you are that way today, right? Like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he's wearing that. I can't believe he's got that Southern accent. Like there's some things that it happens. It happens every Sunday, it happens every Sunday. Hey, but some people, it says, some people believed. Some people believed and their lives were different. Their sins were forgiven. Their chains were gone. They began to walk in freedom. They began to experience hope and joy and peace and love and purpose and calling in their life. Something began to come together and they began to be a part of the mission. Like we have to live for eternity. You know, John Lennon said this, you know the song, imagine, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if we try, no hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine if people started living for today. Like how sad. Don't we all know that's not the case? Why, why, don't, why don't we do that? Hey, we don't have to, because we are devoted to the gospel. Let's pray together. So just in the, just a few moments we have together, just a, in silence, and where do you need to preach the gospel to yourself? Man, what's going on in your life that you need the life-giving transformational power of Jesus to step into, the power of the resurrection and the power of transformation, the power of new, 
that he makes all things new. You know, maybe it is in your finances today as you've kind of endured the last year and a half. It's just been rugged. And you just need to really believe that God's got you again. You know, maybe it's in your health. Maybe there's some challenges you've had you can't seem to shake. You just need to believe that God, God is in midst with you. Not that he's going to deliver you from them right now, but that one day he will, and that will be, and that will be enough. You know, maybe it's in your marriage. Huh. There's just some conflict that's happening, some places where you and your spouse have gotten distracted. You haven't really devoted yourselves to the gospel in your marriage where Jesus says to love your wife as you love the church. So maybe it's, maybe it's in your loneliness. You haven't, really, you haven't really preached the gospel. You just feel alone, abandoned, and forgotten. But the gospel says that God's with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He proved it by sending his son to die for you. You know, maybe it's just your soul today that needs the gospel. Man, you've never taken that step. You never realized that you needed to do something. You never realized that this was the gospel. You thought it was just about living right and following some rules. But today's the day you just need to take that step into eternity, into the gospel today. And the Bible teaches the way that we do that is, as you saw in the story of Paul today, that you believe, you believe, you repent and believe. And if that's you today, if you just want to take that step to follow Jesus, to be a part of his gospel story, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. And it's something that's simple, but you know what? Your heart's already ready. I don't have to convince you. It's not magical, it's just powerful. So if you would, just pray after me. Dear God, I believe that you're good. You have good things for me. I believe that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I believe that Jesus died for me to give me life today. And I'm gonna surrender everything I have to you. You know, in this, this moment, the Bible says that and you're a new creation, you've stepped into eternity, that things are different for you. If that was you, it's so monumental and momentous in your life. I just wanna, I just wanna help you mark this moment today. And the way that we do that here is just, I'm gonna, just with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if that was you today, you prayed that, I'm just gonna count to three. I'm gonna ask you just to slip your hand in the air, just something really simple, but extremely powerful. On the count of three, one, two, three. Awesome. God, we're grateful for the gospel, that it changes us. God, help it to never lose its, man, its power in our life. Help, us, help it to never lose its appeal. God, help us to never think we've grown past it. God, and I pray that as a church, we would just be, be the place that offers hope. And that we offer the hope of the gospel, that it matters, that we don't have to water it down. We don't have to wring it out. We don't have to make it uh, fit, God, that you do that because it's real and it's powerful in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the great symbols of the gospel that we have in the Bible is through communion. So close by you, you should have a little communion set up. If not, also you can, we'll have someone walking down the aisle with the basket because we want to take communion together. We want to be able to proclaim the gospel until Jesus comes again. So if you would, you can grab that. You know, the Bible says that at Jesus' last meal, can you imagine? Jesus is about to be executed, like hung on a cross, beaten within inches of his life, and he's worried about those closest to him. Isn't that crazy? And just his great love for us. And it says that he pulled, he took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it. 
And he said, when, when he looked at it, he says, hey, this is my body that's broken for you. Like whenever you eat up, remember the sacrifice. Remember the gospel. It said in the same way he took the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup of the blood of my body. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And Paul said this, is whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It doesn't just stay here. He's coming again. He's coming again. Hey, we just want to close out with just a statement of faith through worship today as we close our time together. So if you would, let's all stand together and let's worship.